The story of God's goodness continues with this unexpected wagon ride. Let us listen for God as we continue in this story from Scripture. When Pharaoh's household heard the message that Joseph's brothers had arrived, both Pharaoh and his servants were pleased. Pharaoh said to Joseph, Give your brothers these instructions. Load your pack animals and go back to the land of Canaan. Get your father and your households and come back to me. Let me provide you with good things from the land of Egypt so that you can eat the land's best food. And give them these instructions too. Take wagons from the land of Egypt for your children and your wives and pick up your father and come back. Don't worry about your possessions because you will have good things from the entire land of Egypt. So Israel's sons did that. Joseph gave them wagons as Pharaoh instructed, and he gave them provisions for the road ahead. To all of them he gave a change of clothing, but to Benjamin he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of clothing. To his father he sent 10 male donkeys carrying goods from Egypt and 10 female donkeys carrying grain and bread and rations for his father for the road ahead. And he sent off his brothers, and as they were leaving, he told them, Do not be worried about this trip. Let us pray. God of ancient stories, meet us here today. Meet us in the holy stories of ancient dysfunctional families so that we might meet you more fully in the midst of our own lives. In our worship, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be holy and acceptable to you our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Sent on vacation by his brothers in the same way that the mafia might send someone to swim with the fishes, Joseph's journey last week took him away from his home in Canaan, that promised land, the land promised by God to Abraham's sons. Joseph's journey took him beyond into an unknown future of slavery, away from home, and ultimately to Egypt, the place better known in Scripture as the place where the Israelites were in slavery, a place out of which Moses leads the people of God. So, in part, we're used to slavery in Egypt. It's a common narrative. It's a familiar story. But today's story, everything is turned upside down. This time, there is no comfort in the promised land. Canaan is a land of famine and need. Today, comfort is in Egypt, a place of hope in a hopeless time, a place of abundance in a world of scarcity. Unlike last week when Joseph's brother sent him on his way, this time Joseph gets to be the one doing the sending. He sends his brothers from Egypt to Canaan, not into some unknown world of famine and scarcity, but into a future of hope, a promise of abundance. He sends his brothers on a joyfully unexpected, quite luxurious wagon ride home with plenty of food and supplies on a mission to bring everyone from their household back safely into this land of abundance, a land of feasting in a time of famine. All at the request of this brother who was presumed dead and is now found alive, the brother who was lost and is now found, the brother who was mourned and is now celebrated. Sounds a little familiar, yes? And in part, from our vantage point, it sounds like a fable, a classic happily ever after story. The handsome favored son is picked on by his brothers, but even when he's sold into slavery, he gains freedom and power beyond imagination. And he ends up saving the lives of his brothers and forgiving the ones who hurt him. 
We do know what happens next, of course. We've turned the pages. We've opened the next book in the mini-series. We have read the book of Exodus. Happy, happy, happily ever after. It doesn't, it doesn't last. A pharaoh eventually rises in Egypt who didn't know Joseph, who out of fear oppresses Joseph's people so that they groan under the misery and weight of hard work and cruel work. But today, at least, Joseph lives happily ever after, sending his brothers on their unexpected wagon ride to pick up their father and sons and to bring everyone back from starvation into the belly of empire, the land of Joseph's fortuitously full granaries. All that is missing is a fairy godmother. It is such a happily ever after tale that DreamWorks, better known for its fairy tale-centric film Shrek, actually did make a direct-to-video version of this story called Joseph, King of Dreams, a prequel to their more well-known 1998 film, The Prince of Egypt. So, you can watch it at home. There is a certain attractiveness to this story that ends so well, where struggle leads to abundance, where sins are forgiven, where those who were lost are now found. We get pulled in, wishing that our lives, too, might find this happily ever after. But our lives of faith don't rest here, do they? In our lives, no matter how our day ends or our week or our year, no matter how well the next chapter of our life unfolds, we find only a small portion of happily ever after. We count our lucky stars, of course, for the moments that are fairy tale like We find moments of happily ever after around every corner. I've seen it, walking your daughter down the aisle or holding your first grandchild. We launch our whole heart and soul into overdrive with prayers of thank you, thank you, thank you, God, when dreams become reality, bringing your preemie precious twins home from the NICU or finding out that dad's cancer is in remission. But we live in more difficult moments, the rough edges of life. So we design happily ever after vacations to places of comfort and luxury, knowing that we only have that one little moment to unwind before we return to the daily grind and the drama of office work or the nagging responsibilities or the incessant worry. So what, what does happily ever after have to do with us? What does this unexpected wagon ride mean? for us as people of faith. And as some of you may have already been thinking, why would we even focus on these stories from Genesis and Exodus when as Christians the Gospels seem to be much more critical to our life of faith? What does this unexpected wagon ride have to do with God, God with us, Emmanuel, Jesus Christ, the risen one? As Christmas and Easter people rooted in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, what might this wagon ride have to do with us? To unpack those questions, I will take you to the wilderness. You know that I just returned from the Boundary Waters Wilderness canoe area, launching canoes with a team of 14-year-old girls, women, 14-year-old women, armed with one change of clothes, unlike Benjamin, Joseph's brother, who got five changes of clothes for his journey, and some food and some toilet paper and enough bug spray, of course, to last until kingdom come. We paddled and hiked and sent up tents and cooked over a campfire, and all day long we were on, a, on the move, 
But by dusk, when the mosquitoes came out in droves, we settled into our tents, thankfully, and slept with the rhythm of the sun. The thing that was a little bit different than your regular wandering in the wilderness was that with breakfast and dinner, we had church time. We prayed and read scripture and focused on the big picture of Christianity. Who is God and who was and is Jesus and why do bad things happen? And what does this have to do with us anyway? We celebrated Christmas on Tuesday and Easter on Thursday, the shortest and fastest holy year ever. And I hope that this winter, when we hum Silent Night, it will all bring us back, bring those 14-year-olds back to that sunset we watched together from from a small island in the wilderness on a warm Tuesday in July. In the wilderness... Based on some wild hope that they might take me up on it, I challenged my team to read the Gospels, but with a warning. Here's my warning. Like all your other attempts to read the Bible all the way through, whether you start at Genesis or you start with the Gospels, you will be bombarded by genealogies. But don't give up. Knowing that the Gospel of Matthew hands you a genealogy right off the bat, I launched in some, uh, into some mumbled apology about genealogies. I'm sorry, I, they're there, just, just pass them by, it's okay. But then I found myself halted in my tracks. Why would centuries of Christians affirm this story that unfolds with ancestry if it weren't important? Back in my tent, seeking refuge from the mosquitoes, I reread Matthew's genealogy. And then I flipped forward to Luke's genealogy. What do all these names have to tell us about God's presence in our lives? We cannot make it three verses into the Gospel of Matthew, three verses into the New Testament without Joseph. He's not listed there, of course, in the genealogy from Abraham to David, but he's there. Nonetheless, without Joseph reaching his position of power in the belly of the empire, without him revealing himself to his brothers there in that space, Abraham's lineage would be quite short. Without Joseph, Abraham's lineage would not continue from Isaac to Jacob and Jacob to Judah and Judah to Perez and on and on and on those names that I wanted to just have them pass by to get to the narrative. Without, reaching, without Joseph reaching across the wounds of time, across the feelings of abandonment and the pain of being sold into slavery, without Joseph's radical act of forgiveness, God's story and our story, they don't continue. The themes in Joseph's story return to us over and over again not just in the ancient stories of Abraham's sons, but again in the story of Jesus, the one in whom we put our faith and trust. The hungry are fed, the poor are raised up, the slaves are freed, the ones who are lost are found, the ones who are presumed dead are now found to be alive. The unforgivable is forgiven, scarcity becomes abundance, broken relationships are made whole. And God's presence is named in the midst of all of that. If there were one thing, if 
there were one thing that I would name as the thing that I try to do as a pastor, whether it's in the wilderness or in the classroom, in youth group, or in Sunday school, or in worship, or in service projects, it would be centered around this question. How might you live differently? How might we live differently in response to God's presence in the messiness of our lives? How might we live differently in response to God's presence in the messiness of our lives? Joseph answers that question for us today. Joseph lives differently because of God's presence in the messiness of his life. Joseph doesn't do what the world might coach him to do. He doesn't punish his brothers. He doesn't enslave them or hurt them or send them back to the land of famine. He reveals himself to them and fills a wagon full of provisions so that they might be able to make the journey home and back again and bring their whole family with them to the land of abundance. Joseph doesn't do this because of his own smart leadership. He doesn't do this because of his power or authority or because someone told him to. No, he sees that God has been at work in him this whole time. That God has accompanied him on this journey. That God has not left him. That God has sent him ahead to be the one who saves his brother's lives. He has seen the hidden mystery of God, the disruption of God's presence in his life. He has read the stories. He has been trained up to notice that God is there. So, in light of Joseph's story, how might you live differently in response to God's presence in the messiness of your life, in the messiness of our lives? For even when, at times, we do catch that glimpse of happily ever after, we know that there's still work to be done. The protests in Ferguson remind us that we have work to do in the hope of racial reconciliation. Robin Williams' death reminds us that we have work to do in the hope of healing in the face of depression and mental illness. The Iraqis stranded on a mountaintop remind us that we have work to do in the hope of peace in the Middle East. The Ebola outbreak reminds us that we have work to do in the hope of manageable and possible disease control in poor areas of the world. And the brokenness in our own lives reminds us that we have work to do in our own personal hopes of living differently. And it is in that work, in the midst of our very lives, that God comes to us. God calls us to a better way, a bigger hope, a different way of living. God calls us beyond our smart leadership, beyond our grudges, beyond our painful broken relationships, beyond our precious desire to get ahead or to get back or to get out. God calls us to live differently. And it is in that space between struggle and hope that we can see and name that God is with us. It is because of our struggle and in pursuit of our hope that God comes alongside us, that God comes to dwell with us, that God goes to the cross before us, that God returns to us grace upon grace. Let it be so. Let us live in response to this 
God's presence in our lives. Amen.